0: Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Mary set out and traveled to the hill country in haste to a town of Judah, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the infant leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, cried out in a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how does this happen to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For at the moment the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the infant in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed are you who believed that what was spoken to you by the Lord would be fulfilled. And Mary said, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon his lowly servant. From this day all generations will call me blessed. To Abraham and his children forever. Mary remained with her about three months, and then returned to her home. The Gospel of the Lord. To you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friends, I feel lost without Deacon Rich up here with me. I, I, I don't know how to be a priest anymore without a deacon at my side. So. We have so much to dive into this morning. I, uh, we're taking a deep dive. We're going to talk a little philosophy, a little theology, a little history. We should be out of here by about 1 o'clock. You'll be fine. All right. Uh, okay, so one of the things that marks Catholicism is our love of matter, our love of the created universe, our love of created things. We love the created world because our God who is good, the author and sustainer of all that is, he... Looked at this world he made, if you read the the story of creation in Genesis, he looked and behold, he said it's very good, right? All that exists, all that he holds in being from Saturn to the brain cells in your head to the grass under your feet, all of it. Everything he holds in being and says it's good. Like as Catholics, we recognize in creation a certain iconography, right? Right? that everything in creation is pointing to something beyond itself, that the invisible world is revealing the invisible creator, right? Just like the Sistine Chapel is revealing the mind, the heart of Michelangelo, the artist, right? That the creation points to and reveals the creator. This is what undergirds, if you will, our Catholic understanding of, of sacramentality, that what I just said, that the invisible is made visible... Through the physical. That's a lot of isicals, I know. The invisible is made visible through the physical. And nowhere is this more clearly on display, nowhere is this more um, powerfully on display than in our bodies. The pinnacle, the high point of everything that God made, right? See, to the Catholic way of thinking, the body is not um, like a material or like a a mechanistic or mechanical Machine that gets piloted by this spiritual thing called a soul, right? The body is not like a ship that your soul happens to be inside and controlling, right? That's not how we think about nature or the body. For the Catholic way of thinking, the body and soul form this integrated whole, that the body and soul are wedded together, right? That the Catholic way of thinking from the very beginning looks at matter, looks at the body, looks at the flesh as... Not an obstacle to God's purposes or not an obstacle to our holiness or sanctity, but as the very place where sanctification, grace, like power, it's where it all happens, in the body. The catechism puts it this way, when it talks about the body, when it talks about the flesh, catechism quotes St. Tertullian, Tertullian who says this, that the flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God who is the creator of the flesh. We believe in the word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh, right? Flesh, 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 right? Okay. So Christ didn't come just to redeem our souls. Let me say that again because this is like one of the biggest heresies that many of us believe. Christ did not come simply to take care of our souls, He's not just interested in souls. He's interested in persons, which means he's interested in bodies. St. Paul says Christ came to redeem the body, the redemption of the body. He came to redeem our flesh, which means that heaven, somehow, in some way, in a way that we can't fully understand, heaven will be a bodily experience. Heaven will be a bodily experience, right? Right? I never tire of like teaching about this or thinking about this or sharing this, especially with the kids over in the school, right? Like talking about this notion that at the end of time, when Christ calls all the dead back to life, what we say in the creed, I believe in the resurrection of the body, we are getting our bodies back. They're going to be glorified and transformed, yes, but they're going to be our bodies. Heaven somehow, in some way, will be a bodily experience. Our body, your body, my body, everybody is destined for eternal life. It's not just this when you die, the body goes down and the soul finally is free and it gets to float up to heaven. That's not Catholicism. That's like Platonism. That's Gnosticism. It's just it's certainly not Catholicism. But the problem is many of us have come to believe that, that the body is sort of irrelevant, and finally when we die, we're free of it. Okay, so this whole Catholic way of looking at the body, it's part of why outsiders to the Catholic faith. They look at a lot of things that we do, especially regarding the saints, and they think that we are so weird, okay? And they're kind of right, all right? So let's just be honest. Some of the ways, some of the things that we do as saints, like the way that we talk about saints, right? Like, I remember coming back from a pilgrimage to Rome and Assisi a few years ago, and I was telling people, you know, what I saw, and just like in conversation, talk about, I got to see Catherine of Siena's head, and her finger, and Francis Xavier's arm, and like, What? Yeah, they're just, like, up there. You can look at them, you know. That's why people look at us like, you guys, you Catholics are nuts, right? So, like, but it's part, of, it's part of this whole worldview of understanding that the body matters, right? Like, it's why we venerate the bodies of saints because their bodies, like, it was through that body, it was through that arm that Francis Xavier baptized more people than, like, in the history of Christianity. It was not Francis Xavier's soul that was baptized. It was this arm. And you can point to it and be like, there it is. It's kind of scary, but that's the arm, Right? Catherine of Siena's finger, okay, Catherine of Siena's finger, mind you, she wasn't chopped up to bits when she was killed. She just died and and we kind of chopped up afterwards. Anyway, we're not going to talk about that. But you can look at her finger, the finger that like she pointed at the Pope who was living in Avignon, France and said, get your butt back to Rome and be the Pope. Like that's the finger that she was poking the Pope in the chest with. I think that's amazing. All right, maybe I'm the only one. Okay, so We build our churches over the bodies of saints, St. Peter's Basilica. It's just a gigantic grave monument over Peter's bones, right? And, like, every one of our churches has a relic stone that, like, there's a bit, a little piece of the saint, their body, in our altars. And when the priest comes in and kisses the altar, he's, the symbolism, he's kissing, he's venerating this, like, the relic of the saint, Why? Because in the book of Revelation, the saints are beneath the altar. What? Pretty wild. Awesome stuff. So we venerate the bodies of saints. And God's grace, by some singular crazy way, has preserved certain saints from total corruption that we have in our tradition. We have incorrupt saints. Like saints who died hundreds of years ago, whose bodies are just preserved. They're not decomposing. Padre Pio, looks like he's napping. Right? Saint Bernadette, she's totally just like taking a snoozer, right? Like, it's unbelievable. Their bodies are just being preserved. Why would God do this? To point out the fact that our bodies matter, the flesh matters, all of this matters. But here's the thing. There is no church in the world that purports to be, nor has there ever been a church in the history of Christianity that has ever claimed to house the mortal remains of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, think about this from a historical standpoint. Or from a marketing standpoint, like a PR standpoint, that would be a heck of a marketing thing to say, like, step right up, folks, come check out the bones of Mary, right? Like, like, we got the bones of Mary. You have flocks of pilgrims coming to, like, look at pieces of her hair or, you know, her finger. I don't know what it's but, like, no church in the history of Christianity ever purported to have the mortal remains of the Blessed Virgin. Because from the beginning of Christianity... Christians have believed what we are celebrating today. This feast that we are celebrating, the Assumption of Mary, that at the culmination of her life, Mary was preserved not just simply from death, but she conquered death. That she was preserved from the corruption of death, and her divine Son, He assumed her body and soul into the very heart and center of the Trinity, so that where He is, she would be. Just like David took the Ark of the Old Covenant, right, the Ark that housed the manna bread and the the tablets of the law and the staff of Aaron just like David took the ark of the old covenant and put it into the heart of the temple in the in the earthly city of Jerusalem Jesus who's the new David takes his mother the new ark of the new covenant and places her in the heavenly Jerusalem in the heart of the heavenly temple this is why we have those David readings by the way right this is why we have like the book of revelation talking about the ark of the covenant being seen in heaven and like It's a woman clothed with the sun. All of these things are coming together to show us that this feast day is super important. Here's the thing. Here's the thing that's pretty astounding. Our feast day today proclaims not only what happened to her body 2,000 years ago, but what will happen, God willing, by God's grace, to our bodies as well. Because you see, the Feast of the Assumption of Mary is the Feast of the ultimate destiny of the human body. We are gazing upon the ultimate destiny of your body, my body, every body. The ultimate destiny of every body is to be taken up into the very heart of the Trinity. Peter, in his one of his letters, he puts it this way. He says that we are destined to become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. Raise your hand if right now you are partaking of human nature. That should be everybody's hand, unless we have some angels in our midst. Okay. We are all partakers of human nature, right? We are all participating in human nature. We are not participating as of now yet in divine nature. We are not made yet of the stuff of God, but that is what we are called to. That's our destiny That when we die, we don't slough off this mortal coil. We don't just shed this body like a snake, right? The body is destined to be divinized, resurrectified, if you will, glorified. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, the body is made for the Lord. So we can ask the question, like, for what is the body made? The answer is for the Lord. Your body is made for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. This This is why we call Mary our hope that she is already fully redeemed. She, she, like She is what we all hope to be by God's grace. So here are my two questions. Here's the two questions, right? So I'm kind of getting to this first one already, but like, why does all of this matter? <laughs> is this not just like some theological Sudoku, like it's fascinating and it's just like, yeah, that entertains my mind for a little bit. No, like, why does all of this matter, number one? And secondly, if this does matter so much, Why did it take the Lord through the church so long, like up until 1950, why did did God wait until 1950 to declare this as a dogma of the faith? I think that's a very fascinating question. If this matters so much, why did God wait until 1950 for the church to declare the dogma of the Assumption? Okay. Okay. First question, why does this matter so much? This matters so much because right now in our culture, in our world, we are experiencing almost a near total eclipse of the meaning of like the human body. We are experiencing an eclipse of the meaning of being human, the meaning of being a man, the meaning of being a woman, being a husband, a wife, a father, a mother, a brother, a sister. Like What it means to be human, what it means to be a human person is under intense attack right now. And it has been for decades, right? In a way that it hasn't been before. Like those words, mother, father, wife, husband, brother, sister, son, daughter, all of these words, these words which imply relationship, which is what we were made for, all of these words, they only make sense with reference to bodies, and if the body's under attack, that means, like, human relationship is under attack, which means the ultimate meaning of our life is under attack. You get me? Like, it's all being under attack. I want to read this quote. This is from my buddy Christopher West. He puts it this way. He says, Today, governments, in fact, are now demanding in law that we identify everybody without identifying any body. But when we identify somebody without reference to his or her body... We identify quite literally, nobody. Kind of a tongue twister, but the problem there is that we are not nobodies. We are not nobody. We are somebodies, right? We are person bodies. I have a body, right? Here's the thing: because of the failed sexual revolution, which promised to humanity ultimate happiness, ultimate fulfillment through the enjoyment of the body, because that sexual revolution failed, our culture has grown to despise what it originally was idolizing. Okay, so the culture back in the 50s, 60s when the sexual revolution was taking off was idolizing the body saying you will be the ultimate happiness and bringer of human fulfillment, the total pleasure and enjoyment of the body and all sensual goodness. It was idolized, but every idol, because it's an idol, cannot deliver on the promise So we end up despising the thing that we idolize. So now what we have is like a culture filled with healthy, perfectly healthy men and women, teenage boys and girls who are mutilating their perfectly healthy bodies because they think they were born into the wrong body. And we have science saying that gender is something that is assigned at birth. I'm not even going to go there, but no, (laughs) it's not. See, this goes back centuries Like, what we're experiencing today goes back centuries. The intellectual groundwork was laid centuries ago. That, like, Rene Descartes, who you maybe studied in your Philosophy 101 class, in the 16th, 17th century, Rene Descartes, who famously said, I think, therefore I am, right? That was his first principle, saying that to be a human person isn't to be this body-soul thing. To be a human person, he said, is to be this spiritual, non-physical self that inhabits a machine body. He split the body and soul from each other. And what happened was that this whole, I think therefore I am, eventually evolves and blooms into what we are hearing today. People say, I think therefore I am whatever I think I am. I think I'm an Apache helicopter. Don't tell me otherwise. That's my identity. You can refer to me as All right? It's gonna be my preferred pronoun. I think therefore I am whatever I think I am. Now look, I, I, we have to have extreme reverence and compassion for people who are very confused in this way. But when we start saying something that's not true is true, we're just setting ourselves up for total destruction. We cannot build a civilization on lies. Like as a culture, we have never felt less at home in our bodies than we do today. We kind of hate our bodies. We hate the fact that our bodies age. We hate the fact that our bodies are decaying, like, like age lines and wrinkles and gray hairs, the multi-trillion dollar industry that is like trying to help us just forget the fact that we are mortal and failure, like frail and heading to the grave. We have never, like never been less at home in our bodies. So here's the second question, why? Why is it that it was not until the middle of the 20th century did the Pope, did the Lord through the Pope declare the dogma about the destiny of Mary's body? It's because of what I said earlier, that this feast isn't simply about what happened to her. That this solemnity is about proclaiming boldly, audaciously, what's going to happen to all of us. Like the ultimate destiny of the human body. That is why I think the Lord waited until 1950. Look, I don't pretend to know the mind of the Lord, but I think when you look at history... It makes a lot of sense that the Lord would have waited until the middle of the 20th century, like the, the halfway point, 1950, the middle of the 20th century, the middle of the bloodiest, brutalest century of human history. A century that saw this all-out war against the dignity of the human person, a war against the human body. The century that saw the killing fields of Cambodia and the gas chambers and the mountain of corpses of Auschwitz and Dachau, that saw the killing fields of Cambodia, that saw the the uncountable tens of millions of corpses killed in the gulags of Soviet Russia or in Mao's Red Revolution. Right in the middle of this 20th century, which launched the sexual revolution, the normalization of contraception, on-demand divorce, the century that saw the legalization of abortion with Roe versus Wade. Like in the middle of that century, the Lord looked at humanity and said, no, I want you to see what you are destined for. I'm going to hold her up so that she can contemplate and see the glory that you are destined for, that the body is for the Lord. Like, I think that the declaration of the assumption in 1950 was the Lord's response to the devastation and destruction of all that happened up to that point in the 20th century. Like, the horror of Hitler's concentration camps had just come to light. The world had just seen it. And moreover, like man had just discovered like the way to split the atom, right? The fundamental building block of the physical universe. At the same time, dark spiritual forces were splitting apart the atom of the family, which is the building block of society. On the morning of August 9th, 1945, there was a devout Catholic doctor living in Nagasaki. His name was Takashi Nagai. The story goes that he saw this blinding flash of light, and then the, like, thunderous sound of rubble as his clinic collapsed upon him. Somehow, Dr. Nagai survived the bombings of Nagasaki. He crawled out from underneath the rubble, and he witnessed firsthand what had just happened. He thought, surely, hundreds of people must have died, only later to discover that nearly 80,000 people died in that bombing. Listen to this. In the aftermath of the bombing... Nagai applied himself to the medical needs of survivors. Each life was precious, he said. For all these people, the body was a precious treasure. As he carried on his work, he struggled to arrive at some understanding of the meaning of this event, a meaning, ultimately, that he could only discern in relation to the cross. Nagai found it remarkable that as a result of the heavy clouds obscuring the originally intended city, the bomb had been dropped that day on Nagasaki, an alternate, an alternate target. As a further result of the clouds, the pilot had not fixed his target on the Mitsubishi Ironworks factory, as had been intended, but instead on the Catholic cathedral in the Urukami district of the city, home of the majority of Nagasaki's Catholics. He noted that the end of the war came when the emperor surrendered and accepted terms on August 15th, 1945, the Feast of the Assumption of Mary, to whom the cathedral was dedicated. All this was deeply meaningful. He wrote, we must ask if this convergence of these events, the ending of the war and the celebration of her feast, was merely coincidental, or if there was here some mysterious providence of God. You might say that in response to the bodily devastation that resulted from humanity's A-bomb, God the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit dropped upon the world through the church his own A-bomb, the assumption, the assumption which is the world's only hope. Like, you wonder if the sexual revolution that launched in the 50s and 60s was a diabolical response, like this furious retaliation to the church's declaration of Mary's bodily assumption that right now, in heaven, there is already the perfect body of the perfect woman. You wonder if the enemy saw that and just launched his full-on assault. Like the enemy, right, who hates us, who appears in Genesis as this harmless snake, but is revealed in Revelation as this, like, furious red dragon that is hell-bent on consuming life, right? This enemy of ours who is honestly, he went to war against us because he was envious, envious of us, but at the same time he is terrified of her. The enemy is terrified of her. And he went to war against humanity precisely because of what God was going to do with her. What God was going to do with and for and through our bodies. Our bodies that reflect God's image in this world. Our bodies that, like, through our masculinity and femininity, our bodies that participate in God's life-giving love. That we image on earth the Trinity through marriage and through our vocations, right? He went to war against us because of our body's great dignity of participating in the incarnation That God didn't become an angel. He didn't become a penguin. He didn't become a giraffe. He became a human. The incarnation happened in human flesh. That God took on our body in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and He hates our bodies, for they are destined to be elevated to a position higher than the angels. He hates us and our bodies because of what God intended to do with her body. This woman who is clothed with the sun, this woman who is higher than the angels. Radiate, radiant in glory, fully alive in all of her femininity and maternity, this woman who is our hope, the assumed like queen of heaven and earth, her womb, which is ever fruitful, always bringing forth divine life, always, now and forever, right? And from her mystical womb, which is the church, Mary continues to participate with the power of the Holy Spirit, generating the humanity of Christ, both on this altar and in you and me. Like Mary is in labor pains bringing to birth Christ in us. She brings Christ's humanity to us on this altar, right? His flesh, which took flesh from her flesh, his blood, which was from her blood, is given to us that it might touch our bodies. That the whole goal of God's desire for us, that we would be divinized, might happen and begin in every single mass. Look, the Catholic Church is the last defender of truth and sanity in the world. And we proclaim, because of this feast, we proclaim so boldly to a world that's gone insane, the truth about what it means to be human. The truth of the body. The truth and the beauty and the glory of our destiny. That we are not made for just to be like worm food. We are made for the heights of glory. And we gaze upon her to see our destiny. It's all summarized in her. Mary, who is the the crusher of all heresies, Mary, who is our hope, she's our, our race's solitary boast. So we turn to you now, Blessed Mother. We ask you to pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we also, we too, would be made worthy of the promises of your Son. Amen.